Hello and welcome to Hunt, Find, Alert, the canine search and rescue podcast where we discuss everything related to the world of canine search and rescue. As always, I'm your host, Zephyr Allen, and thank you for joining us today. So we have a, a great conversation coming up, one that I've been looking forward to having for quite a while. And I'm glad to be able to do it and, and glad for our guest to come on today. His name is Paul Bunker. Paul, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you, Zephyrin. Thank you for the opportunity and inviting me to talk today. And I appreciate everyone that's going to listen in. Very good. Great to hear it. So today we're going to talk about something that's really essential to canine search and rescue, specifically when we talk about HR. Uh, in this imprinting odor. And so a few months ago, I read Paul's book about imprinting odor on dogs. And so I reached out to him and he was kind enough to join us on the podcast. But as always, before we get into the to the meat of the episode, we'd like to know a little bit more about our guests. And so, Paul, I'm going to ask you to kind of talk about your history, uh, working with animals in general, working with dogs specifically, and and what you've done with dogs over your many years. So one thing I will note, uh, uh, based off your accent, I'm guessing you're from Iowa or Kansas, somewhere in the Midwest. Is that right, Paul? Yeah, people confuse me with Arkansas, actually. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm British, English specifically. I was born in London, but I lived out in uh, the Midlands. And I spent a lot of time, my parents divorced, I spent a lot of time with my dad who had a farm. Mm -hmm. And pretty much I never had, you know, friends in the area, lived remotely on a farm. And I spent a lot of time with the animals, which we had several dogs, pointers, border collies and Labradors specifically. And they were working dogs. So, you know, he would go off to his day job and in school holidays and weekends, etc. I'd be the one out with dogs and I'd wander the fields and kind of enjoy myself. And when I left school, which we leave school at 16 over there, or I did, um, I wanted to work with dogs. And the only options was the military or the police. And I was too short for the police. I was five foot eight and you had to be five foot ten minimum. So it was the military. And luckily enough, I joined the Royal Army Veterinary Corps as a dog trainer. I was one of two people, I think it was that year, selected to become dog trainers in the British Army. I... Uh, Completed 22 years in the end, always on canine. And I did conduct some special projects. One of those actually was live fine. And it, it was looking for spies in in Germany, on the border with East Germany. Oh, really? That's really interesting. I've I've never heard of that. Was that a uh, a pretty big um or excuse me, did it did a, were there a lot of dog handlers that did that or were there just a handful? No, it was only two, actually, okay. it was nuclear sites. And um, so, you know, it was obviously classified back then. I'm sure. pretty sure I can mention it now. But it was just two teams. And, you know, back then I knew nothing about lifeline search and basically no template to follow, developed this off-leash detection capability, which would find spies that were laid up, camouflaged in wooded areas around the nuclear site. So... You know, in this case, it was spies that were trying to evade detection, but there's a lot of similarities there to life find of someone that's missing or, or you know, has some mental impairment or something. Mm -hmm. uh, the principles are pretty much the same, but that was kind of my experience. And that would have been in the 80s, very, yeah, mid 80s, maybe. Okay. And um, how long did you do that for? Just interested. 
that was a special project I ran and it was operational for a couple of years. Um, I then left, I went over to Northern Ireland for some time doing detection and then back to the schoolhouse in the UK and traveled around a bit. Um, but then I ended up on a special project for the American military, which was landmine detection. And I trained some teams. I deployed to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri with those teams to continue setting up their military school. And then when I retired from the military in 2004, I was asked by the DOD to come over and establish an off-lease detection program. And this was for canines going to Iraq and Afghanistan to do off-leash standoff detection of IEDs mm -hmm. and weapon caches. So I did that for a year in Missouri. Then I moved down to San Antonio, Texas to the 341st Training Squadron, which is the military training school for canines. I was a, a senior technical advisor there for six years, I think it was. Went up to uh, North Carolina, joined a large commercial. In fact, I was with the, a large commercial company, but had a contract to train army tracking dogs for a year for Afghanistan. Then I joined another company up in North Carolina, and I spent time as project manager training handlers for off-leash detection. I then became a program manager for research and development for the Office of Naval Research and Detection, which was non-invasive research. It was all detection-based, uh, buried hides, specifically duration of search, nutrition, hydration, those sort of things. Mm -hmm. Then I became director of the school. And um, part of that was actually developing off-leash detection for oil spill response. And I deployed to Canada for four months with some teams. Realized then that actually being on the ground, doing the applied work in detection was what I love and what I missed. Because being director, you know, you were logistics, you were running people and places. So right. I decided to then, within a month of getting back from that deployment, leave the company, set up my own company, which is uh, Sharon K9. That was in November, 2017. Decided to move back to Texas. And I've been here ever since. Okay, very good. Yeah, I, Texas just uh, has a way of growing on people. I've, I've I've come to find out. So I'm interested. So you mentioned the oil spill detection. Uh, I'm assuming these were were underground pipes, and it, does the oil sort of float to the surface underground, or is it does it does it stay at the same level? How does oil uh, permeate the soil? This is actually spill response. So in the okay. case of well, we do offshore, so shoreline type spill responses ah, yeah, I see. Okay. or platforms, but also inshore. And up in Canada, actually, it was a pipe that had burst, and it burst uphill of a river. Mm -hmm. And the, the oil then, uh, thousands of gallons of oil, had seeped into the river and then was washed down stream 600 kilometers. So it affected three cities, I think it was, water supply, plus obviously fishing and uh, recreation, et cetera. So right. over the course of four years, I deployed up there. Um, the winter is so harsh, we couldn't be deployed during the winter. So we'd go up in spring after the first thaw, stay all summer. And then as winter was coming back, we'd move back to stateside. And then I went back another two years after that doing follow-up searches. Mm -hmm. So in this case, we had, it was around 10,000 verified finds with the dogs. Uh, I've had 
I don't know, four, 5,000 confirmed finds with my dog from stain on reeds all the way up to huge 100 meter mats, which are buried under the sediment. They've been buried by the ice flow over the summer and also underwater in the actual river sediments. Oh, okay, cool. That's very interesting. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, when you were hunting spies in, in, in East Germany, did you actually find any hidden in the woods or did the team find any hidden in the woods? No, we was on the west side. So oh, okay. yeah. it was on the border, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, they would have come in from the east or at least been yes. aligned with the east. But uh, I don't know, to be honest. And <laughs> they would tell me. Certainly, you know, I was the instructor trainer and then sure. I trained two handlers. They deployed to the sites. I would go on routine follow-ups just to make sure they were maintaining standard and do maintenance training. But if they found people or not, I don't know that they would actually tell me even if they did. Okay. Understood. Understood. Um, so I do want to ask just for the, the listeners uh, context, uh, you've obviously been working with dogs for a very long time. I think I counted about 30 years in there that you, uh, that you highlighted. What breeds of dogs have you generally worked with? I'm sure you, you span the gamut, but, but kind of what have you primarily worked with over your years working with dogs? Yeah, I'll actually admit it's over 40 years now. I mean, I okay. moisturize, so I look nothing like <laughs> age, but yeah, it's 40 years um, professionally. You know, mm -hmm. I trained dogs before that. Um, breeds, I started off with German Shepherds, Rottweilers, Dobermans. Um, Malinois came in later on, but we did have Malinois. Uh, Spaniels, Border Collies, Labradors, Pointers, kind of all the gun dog breeds, and then mm -hmm. the guarded breeds, predominantly. I... You know, I've trained a pit bull. Okay. Um, yeah, but it's mostly, you know, the typical working dog breeds. Okay. And and these days, what, what breeds are, and I know breeds kind of ebb and flow and they get popular and less popular. What breeds are you primarily working with these days? I have my two uh, permanent dogs, if you like. They're my dogs, which are oil spill response and conservation dogs, a Springer Spaniel, English Springer Spaniel, and mm -hmm. a Black Labrador. And then in the kennels, we currently have Labrador, Spaniels, and Pointers. Um, that'll vary depending on the project that we're actually working on, depending as, you know, they might specifically want different breeds. So later in the year, potentially, we're going to work on a project which is all German Shepherds and another project which is Labradors. So I only do project work. Um, I don't have services. I have one training partner, Christine, Christina Brewster, who mm -hmm. works with me, and I keep the company very small for that reason, because I just want to do projects, detection projects, and really focus on research but it, and conservation, environmental work, and also, obviously, we vol both volunteer with search and rescue teams. Very nice. So, so I, I do want to pivot to the, your, your search and rescue comment, uh, but I, I, I'm... I do want to ask just, and this is for the listeners context, because it's going to be relevant as we get into the actual imprinting process and specifically around your workbook. If you were to stick a finger in the air and guess, how many dogs would you, would you guesstimate that you've actually imprinted odor on over your 40 years? Uh, I mean, we're over a thousand. Very good. Okay. I did 600 on alone at Lackland or maybe more. And, you know, my professional career, it's got to be over a thousand. Very good. All right. And so for my listeners, 
Uh, that means he knows what he's talking about. So I'll leave it at that point. So let's transition to uh, your search and rescue background. So you, you mentioned that you're down in the San Antonio, San Antonio, Texas area. Tell us about your team, how many people you all have, what type of searches you do, et cetera. I'm a member of Alamo Area Search and Rescue, ASAR. I joined about five years ago or so. And in fact, I was asked um, to go along and assist with some training and I enjoyed it and it was my first experience with formal search and rescue and I ended up just going every Saturday and most Wednesday evenings after work and helping out on the training and then I don't know how it happened to be honest whether I said I'd like to join full-time or they said what were you always here why don't you join (laughs) us Um, but I ended up a member of the team Um, I don't have a search and rescue dog myself Um, I'm a flanker within the team and there's about 30 people in the team they have human remains live find tracking trailing dogs so i'll deploy out when i'm available and i do travel a lot and i am busy a lot so i don't get out with the teams as much as i would like but when i'm about i do go out and actually flank and assist particularly on the human remains side because a lot of my experiences with buried odors if we think back to the landmine detection, I did a lot of work with buried odors and oil spill, et cetera. So a lot of my experiences and and expertise is in buried odor. So, and I enjoy that, you know, I enjoy the human remains training side of it and training green dogs and bringing them along. So the team only s- supports law enforcement. They're called out by law enforcement and then they have a call out system where all available teams can volunteer to go out, obviously 100% volunteer um, and conduct searches. And the teams are going out tomorrow on a a human remains search. Mostly it's in response to obviously criminal type investigations or lost persons, Mm -hmm. but there is some historical uh, work there. We have gone to a search where there was some construction happening and there was a historical cemetery. And they asked if we can just make sure you know no graves were disturbed which if i recollect they did find a grave close to a road so you know there there is some of that uh, community assistance but it's not it's not like you know anyone could just phone up and say we need a team to help because someone's missing it it's done through law enforcement right right very good all right and i will i will add i've trained with um alamo search and rescue multiple times and a great group of folks uh, really enjoyed working with them. So so let's go ahead and transition and let's talk about your workbook. So the name of the book for, for folks listening is called Imprint Your Detection Dog in 15 Days. And I do want to emphasize the term workbook. And so it is different than a book. So a lot of books that you read, and I've read multiple books about uh, working with dogs and imprinting HR, and they are truly books. And so a lot of it is theory and a lot of it is, hey, here's maybe how you could do it. Uh, this is, again, I'm emphasizing the word work, workbook. This is a step-by-step process of imprinting your dog uh, on odor. And so the key there I'll make sure to mention is it's not specific to HR. It is on odor in general, uh, but it's a great book. It's a really quick read, and it gives you just great step-by-step process of, of Paul's method. So, Paul, I do want to ask, what was your inspiration in, in deciding to complete the book, the workbook, excuse me? Yeah, I'd wanted to write a book for quite a few years and I had dabbled in it. I'd done a couple of chapters here and there and, and 
just not completed anything. And I wrote the book right as COVID was kind of hitting hard. So it would have been March, April of 2020. And I, at the time I was a tutor for an online canine academy called Canine Principles based out of the UK, although they're worldwide. And the owner who was a very old friend of mine from the military, she was conducting, a, and she's a prolific dog book writer and she's now going into novels. So she was conducting a course called Write Your First Dog Book in 30 Days or something. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the exact title. And uh, she'd known I'd wanted to write a book and, you know, I just hadn't got around to finishing anything. And she said, why don't you do my course? I'll put you on for free, seeing you're one of my tutors um, and see what you do. So I literally started on day one on this 30 day course. And within 30 days, I had the workbook written. Now, initially, my idea was to write a book of the full gamut of training a detection dog to include systems of search, et cetera, and quickly realized how huge that task would be. Right. So I decided to focus just on imprinting. And part of that was because, you know, I, imprinting is such an important step. It's such an important baseline in your detection dog. And I felt or do feel that at times people don't put enough emphasis on the imprinting and don't clarify in the dog's mind what it's supposed to be doing as an end result and rush forward and go out to the ground and then run into problems. So I decided I just wanted to give this workbook so that people could follow step-by-step step and have a process to actually imprint a dog and produce a dog that gives a reliable passive response. Because it was COVID, a lot of people were stuck at home and mm -hmm. I was seeing on the news about how there'd been a massive increase in the amount of people adopting dogs, buying dogs. There was huge surge in prices of dogs because there were, you know, big demand because people wanted dogs. But it wasn't difficult to realize that whenever COVID was going to finish, and I know we all thought it was a month or two and yeah. six months <laughs> and ended up a year, but you know, it wasn't long to realize well, all these dogs all of a sudden have had people at home with them 24-7. And they're going to be home alone, you know, and I decided that maybe the workbook would give all these dogs stuck at home something to do while there's time. And um, you know, it's proven that detection could actually help a dog with separation anxiety and um, with mental balance, that maybe this would help people while they are stuck at home and give them something to do, whether it's just to look for keys for fun or just leave it at Kong or Equally, people in human remains or anything could take the book and actually move forward in their chosen profession. So, yeah, I mean, there was a number of reasons why I decided to write the book, but they kind of all came together at the right time. Great. Yeah. So I know I, I'll just I'll just speak for myself. Whenever I saw the book online, I read the title and printing your dog in 15 days. And I thought to myself, man, this guy's crazy. Um, and I, and I had, I knew who you were, I knew of you, I should say. Um, and I was like, there's no way in the world. Do you read the workbook and you're like, okay, well, that, I guess that makes sense. So I, I do want to ask the question and obviously there's variation from dog to dog, dog to dog, but do you think it's truly practical, uh, to take a dog, um, uh, and imprint it on odor within 15 days and get a reliable re uh, response to odor? 
Yeah, because we do it all the time. I mean, mm -hmm. I use the workbook with all our dogs um, when they join the programs because it is a really good, you know, and I'm, I am blowing my own trumpet, but it's a really good, easy, progressive step which captures all the basics of learning that I need in a dog. And Christina, when I travel a lot, she has a step-by-step -step process to actually take the dogs through. And she's picked that bug up, book up and trained dogs from green to, to imprinted in 15 days, sometimes less. Sometimes, you know, it might take 17. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, um, like one of the dogs um, came into season, so we give her a break. So, yeah, you know, if you look at the timeline on Instagram, it took maybe 20 days, but there was reasons why that. But 15 days, yeah. It's absolutely possible just following the basic steps within the workbook. Now, not every dog is going to progress exactly as you would predict. Predict Some need a little more time and a little more training and some go faster. Um, but it is possible to do it in 15 days. Very good. Very good. Yeah, I, after reading through the workbook, it is very logical to me. So. If people are in the process, highly recommend uh, reading the book. W was it a challenge for you putting, you know, 40 years worth of detection dog work into a, a, a I mean, a relatively small workbook? Uh, so, you know, over the years, I've trained many different methods. When we started detection or when I started training detection, should I say, my first experience was explosive detection. Mm -hmm. And the way we did it back then was put the explo live explosives in metal or plastic PVC tubes with holes in and throw them down the road and let the dog pick them up and bring them back to us. And then we would hide their toy, which was explosives, and then they would scratch and bark and dig and tell us where the, the IED was, basically an uh, improvised explosive device or bomb was. And then, you know, the, over time, we started to realize that isn't necessarily the best way to train dogs. And actually, I'd gone on an Association of Chief of Police Canine Instructors course in the UK, and I'd seen a passive response system, and I took it back to the military because I was the first trainer to ever do that course. And we started a program of passive response, uh, sit response, when they found an ID, and using tennis balls. And that moved forward dog training quite a bit in the military, but then the landmine detection program, you know, you cannot use an aggressive response dog when you're searching for landmark. Well, you can, but you're only going to do it once. <laughs> once, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the passive response then, and I was in charge of that whole program. And fortunately, the officer in charge, I think I talk about this in the book, Major Matt Sheriff, he gave me full control and said, get on with it, you know, and come back to me when you're finished. There was no oversight there was no micromanaging nothing so that gave me the opportunity to really develop passive response and a number of the other things introduce another number of other techniques into the training program and that really honed my understanding of imprinting i developed the three-leg stool out of that which is in the work workbook mm -hmm. how important to click a training and you know that that my old whole concept of imprinting came from that point and then over the years i've used different methods i paired the reward uh, yeah the reward the tennis ball or kong or whatever with the odor i've uh used a conditioned response where you tell the dog to sit and then you pay and 
really this system I found is the simplest and easiest. So it's the one I decided that if it's put into a workbook, anyone could pick it up. And this system is so simple that they could apply it with a lot of dogs. I'm not saying all dogs, but a lot of dogs and at least get something out of it. If it's a pet dog, at least they would get a clicker trained dog and mm -hmm. maybe a dog that enjoys a bit of fun search. But if it's a working dog that has the potential capability to move on to a professional career, then there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to produce a dog based off the steps in the workbook. So there's a lot of background that I've omitted from the book because I've done it and realized it's not the best way to train a detection dog. And I just feel this system is a nice, simple step-by-step -step system to produce the dog that in the end gives a passive response on a target odor. Very good. So one of the things I'll mention that I, I really appreciated about the book uh, was the videos. And so for those of you who may have the workbook or if you're thinking about buying it, when you read a lot of uh, books about imprinting dogs on odor, it's, it's pictures uh, and pictures can be very useful. Uh, but Paul incorporates QR codes into his workbooks. And so he'll give an explanation to say, you should do these steps. And then you pull out your phone and you scan the QR code and there's a short video of the dog doing those steps that he just described. So for people who are very visual like I am, uh, it makes the learning process much easier to see what it is that the workbook workbook is alluding to, which is very much appreciated. So, so Paul, I'm curious, um, do you have any, you mentioned that uh, your business partner, Christina, has done this. Any other success stories that you've had uh, from people who followed this book and seen it work for them? Yeah, I get updates weekly from different people sending me videos of their dogs actually doing the work. Um, again, on Instagram, I think there's video of this little, little puppy. It must be nine weeks old that went through the workbook and was beautiful. Um, so I do get feedback fairly regular. The book has sold a lot more successfully than I thought ever imagined. So, you know, in comparison to the amount of feedback I get, I'm sure there is others. Mm -hmm. um, but last week we had a visitor over from Australia, Tracy uh, from Skylos Canine, which is conservation company. And she basically just said, hey, I'm traveling in the States. I'm going to fly out of Dallas, but I'd really like to come down and visit for a day. Well, you know, that's great. It's another conservation dog team person and I'm more than happy obviously to um, host people and we'd had, had some interaction in the past on conferences and um, we're in the Australian Conservation Canine Network and different things you know so backwards and forwards but that was as far as it ever went well she'd actually flown in to thank me for the workbook and how it made a huge impact on their teams and you know, something like that happened. Someone took the time yeah. that came to the US, but actually she flew, flew down just for one day to specifically say, you know, the workbook has made a big difference to their program. That, you know, you can't top something like that. It, it makes it all worth it. Absolutely. That's wonderful. Wonderful. So I, I want to jump into it and, and talk about your imprinting process. And so I'll, I'll say that with the caveat of people who are listening uh, the workbook is available. It's available on Amazon. I'm sure Paul has it on his website, which we'll give here later. Uh, and so what we're just going to do is just kind of a high-level overview of the, the the different aspects of the workbook. So if you want the detail, detailed information, feel free to reach out and, 
and grab the book. It's very accessible, really easy to use and really easy to read. So one of the things that I, I initially noticed uh, in your workbook is you start the imprinting process. And so when I picked up the workbook, I thought, all right, he's going to teach me how to put the dog on odor. But that's actually not where you start. You start with reward selection. So can you talk a little bit of, about why you start with reward selection versus odor? Yeah, uh, dogs are individuals just like us. You know, mm -hmm. we all have our favorite things, um, whether it's food or hobbies, um, thing, TV shows to watch, whatever it is. And I know if I forced potentially a lot of listeners to watch some British comedy, you would have <laughs> the worst half hour of your life, you know, and not understand it and not enjoy it. But yeah. I've been rolling around laughing my head off because I love some of the British comedy. And it's the same with dogs. You know, they're individuals and they all have choices and they all have things they do like and things they don't like. And one of the principles of accelerated learning is a high value reward. Well, it's not high value to us. It's what's high value to the dog. And the only way that you can assess what is high value to the dog is get them to tell you. So the first thing is a reward selection exercise so that we understand exactly what the dog feels is of high value in his life, whether it's tugging, or retrieving and then food, but then from even retrieving, what toy do you like to retrieve or what toy do you like to tug? And the reward selection exercises gives us this hierarchy of rewards, one that the dog likes, but what's his jackpot, what's his favorite, what's his secondary, what's his tertiary. So now we have a hierarchy of rewards that we can use to um, implement in training. And you can motivate drive, through implementation of high value rewards, but also you can reduce drive. And I'm thinking about the super high drive Malinois. Mm -hmm. And this is something I noticed on Lackland when I worked there, we'd get these super high drive Malinois from Europe. And if you gave them a red Kong, they just went to red mist. You know, they couldn't concentrate. Their, their minds are gone because they're over aroused. And we were getting very little training done because you were spending half your time trying to calm your dog down so it could learn. And it's climbing the walls, you know, it just wants to wake calm. So I went to a, a, a big convenience store that's based in the US that's very cheap. And I bought a heavy dog rubber ball. It must weigh two pounds. Um, and I started to use that on these Malinois. Now, the Malinois would still take the rubber ball because they want something to play with, but it they weren't, over aroused by it it wasn't their favorite but it kept them at a level of arousal that i could actually train them for a period of time and then when it came to the last training session i'd give them the red kong and they would get their jackpot and i started to realize how you can manipulate drive through uh, implementation of variable rewards i started to look into it and realize well why are we telling the dog what its reward favorite is for a start and then why aren't we using those rewards to assist us in the training process? And that's how I started to use reward selection and realized how important it is that the dog tells us what it finds rewarding. We don't tell the dog. And we have a Malinois at the minute, Adele. Now you would expect a Malinois, the Kong is life, you know, and mm -hmm. she's three year old. She's received quite a bit of training before we got her. And we did a reward selection exercise she didn't even look at the Kong. She never picked it up once. She had no interest in Kong. She wanted uh, balls and tug toys. 
Well, if she'd gone to potentially, you know, somewhere like a, a military dog school or formal dog school, and they just picked up a Kong and thought, well, she's Malinois, she's having a Kong, you're actually not tapping into that dog's full potential because you're trying to reward it with something that she never had any interest in. She'll take it because that's all there is, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But we, we've moved so much more faster forward with her because we start to utilize the reward that she actually enjoys. Gotcha. That makes sense. And so I, I'd be curious, Have is there any predictability there as far as dogs, uh, working dogs specifically, uh, that may not pan out if you, if you aren't able to find a reward early in that process? And it, does that give you the ability to maybe wash your dog from your program quicker? Yeah. I mean, so I do use food and I do use toys and the dog will choose which which it prefers. We have a dog at the moment, a Labrador, and, and this isn't unusual. I've had a, three Labradors, I think, in the recent years that are like this, that have no interest in reward, uh, retrieving in comparison to food. I mean, snackadors, mm. that's what they're going to do. But, <laughs> yeah. um, I have the flexibility that I can use whatever reward the dog prefers. Now, if the dog has very low limited or no reward drive, then yeah, I'm potentially not going to spend a lot of time trying to train that dog if I've got nothing to use as a reinforcement for the training process, it's just going to make life very difficult. There are some dogs that will work for praise, of course. Um, but I've got to move that dog on to someone else at the end of a project. And predominantly, I donate a lot of dogs to law enforcement, etc. So I want something that's a bit more bulletproof mm -hmm. and um, street capable rather than being concerned about the level of praise reward you've got to put into it. So generally, yeah, I do like some sort of reinforcement, which is repeatable and it's, um, it's easy to apply. Okay. All right. And so then uh, step one in this process is uh, reward selection. Uh, I will mention that uh, Paul uh, gives a, a detailed process about how to go about reward selection in his book for both food and uh, uh, treats. Um, how, how long does that usually take, Paul? Is that is that a few hours? Is that a couple of days in the process? Uh, where does that fall? Yeah, it doesn't take long. So basically, uh, the first stage with the reward, with the toy reward, is you play with the dog with that reward so it understands what the reward value is. You know, you can't just take a pile of toys, put them out there and let the dog choose one because the dog might not understand how a Kong interacts with the dog or a tennis ball that has a squeaky inside or something. So you play with the dog first, you let them know how that dog interacts with them and the pleasure they could receive from that reward. And then uh, the actual process is five minutes, maybe 10 um, of, of doing the reward selection. So you could do it in one day. It's nice to build a little background of um, reward understanding, but yeah, one or two days. Very good. And, and what age would you recommend doing this process at? Is it is it eight weeks? Is it a year, two years? Or is there a, a, sweet, a happy medium somewhere in there? Yeah, I don't work with puppies um, by choice. So generally, I'll do this from 10 months onwards. I'd like some maturity in the dogs rather than tapping into that, you know, teenage years and before. So and I think detection and learning and understanding in a complex type environment needs some maturity with a young dog you need to be putting in a lot of work with socialization environmental work 
around being around animals, being transported, you know, all those life skills mm -hmm. before you start to train the dog in a professional manner. And I think by having that really solid understanding of living life and being part of your family group um, and within the environment and going out and meeting strangers and doing all those sort of things and animals, then if the dog possesses that, it can move into complex detection work. So generally I don't start training a dog. I, I don't accept a dog into training until it's 10 months old or older. Nope. Okay, very good, very good. So then um, going back to the workbook from reward selection, you then, you then transition into clicker training. So if you wouldn't mind, just give us your, your high level overview of what clicker training is. And then if you can kind of detail why that's number, uh, step number two in your uh, process of imprinting odor on the dog. I was introduced to clicker training. Again, it's in the workbook. Um, it, oh, I'm trying to think now. It would have been like 1998, 1999 by an a army colleague of mine. He'd seen clicker training and he showed me a video uh, of, it was from the United States actually, and it was clicker training. And the person had shown how to train the dog to follow a touch stick and teach it agility. And at the time I said to him, you know, this is a circus trick. It's, there's no use in this clicker work or anything mm -hmm. but obviously I kept it in the back of my mind and when I started the landmine detection program we had to teach the dogs or one of the the techniques that I actually developed was the dogs would follow the end of a mine prodder which is like a three foot metal stake um, and we put a cork on one end and the dog's nose would follow that as we swept it across the ground and the dog would actually move wherever we placed the mind product, the touch stick in principle. And it was clicker training, obviously, and going back to that video that made me realize that is the easiest way to train this technique. So we trained the dogs on that. And I started to realize what benefits clicker training has in actual dog training. We trained six dogs on that project. And then after that, I trained quite a lot of dogs in different roles, but always went back to using the clicker because some of the principles that I believe is by using clicker first, we start to open the dog's mind to learn. The dogs start to realize, well, I do things and this click happens, I get reinforcement. So I can manipulate my behavior to make the click happen to get something I like. So the dogs start to understand they can control to some degree the opportunities to receive reinforcement. It also gets their mind to start the process of understanding what shaping is, what luring is, and what capture is. And those are the techniques that I do use at some point during the training process. So instead of waiting four, five weeks, months, whatever it is into training, and I suddenly decide I'm going to capture a behavior, the dog already understands what that is and isn't confused later on in its training process when all of a sudden capture happens. It also starts to get the dopamine uh, rushing. So the dog understands what a dopamine buzz is and it gets some, you see them, they start to drag you to the training room. They want to get in there. When they get in there, they're excited and happy and they want to work. And this is just clicker training. This is just the start. So I think it really sets the dog up and sets us up in a position where learning can occur. And I will clicker train any dog that I train for any task. It doesn't have to be detection. 
It also obviously gives you a great tool that you can apply in, in training. And I've actually used it where other people have come for training and I've told them you must click a training dog because when we start training, I can be the one operating the clicker. And because it's a consistent sound, it's not like a yes. I mean, obviously my yes, I speak in proper English. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so, um, my pronunciation of yes would be different than someone else's. But with mm. a clicker, it's a click, it's consistent. So I can allow the handler under training to really concentrate on maybe watching body language, not watching a change of behavior. On odor, for instance, I can be the one that does the click and they can concentrate one on learning the skill set I want them to learn instead of worrying about, oh, I have to click at the right time and I have to make sure I do this right. It's just another layer of stress I can take off them. But it also means standing back, I can observe exactly when that click needs to happen. And, you know, I've got some experience in doing this now. So I can apply the click. The student handler can see that's when I should be clicking. That's the behavior I'm looking for. I can be a reward dispenser and I can reduce a layer of stress off that handler so that they can concentrate and actually learn another skill set. So mm -hmm. I believe the clicker offers a lot of advantages in training dogs. Um, and I was a total convert, you know, from initially saying, yeah, this is just a circus trick. So now every dog is clicker trained. Very good. So, so generally with, I say generally, let, let me back up that statement. So with clicker training, there is, there's often a discussion about rewarding uh, at odor versus rewarding away from odor. Uh, and if you're doing a clicker training there, you know, people will generally reward away from odor. If you're not doing clicker training, it's generally at odor. Uh, what do you stand on that? Is it important to reward at odor when you're doing clicker training or is it okay to reward away from odor? I do both. So my dogs are all experienced in direct and indirect reward that is at odor or away from odor. And there's, again, there's different reasons and advantages in doing that. Um, the dogs understand that when they detect odor, they have to stay at odor. So there's an obedience to odor until something happens. And that something is either a click, which is releases them, and they must come back to me, or I move forward, and in case of oil spill, I have to mark the location that they've responded with a pin flag, then I can reward them, and then we have to data collect. Now, depending on the situation in front of me, again, I have these different tools that I can use. In a lot of cases, I'll just throw the reward into source, and we're done. But recently, I deployed to Lao, um, with some uh, Sarlar, which is the most endangered mammal in the world. So we trained some dogs, Christina and I, to actually detect dung, uh, scat, and go into the jungle of Lao and try and look for the Sialla. Now, one of the problems is that snares exist in the jungle environment. Mm -hmm. And those snares are significantly large because they snare deer and pigs, etc. So by using the clicker, it means that when a dog responds, we can click and the dog moves away from that snare back to the handler. The, the reward doesn't have to be thrown at source. Now, when it's on scat, we can throw at source. So the dog understanding that I can receive my reward either directly or indirectly gives me a lot more flexibility in how I want to deploy that dog and how I want to reward that dog. Very good. Very good. And so for the sake of the listeners, I, I want to make sure to go back and state the obvious. So 
the process is starting with uh, reward selection. And so by starting with reward selection, once you move to clicker training, then you know what's incredibly motivating for your dog, slightly motivating for your dog, and not at all motivating for your dog. And so that, that I would presume, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, um, gives your clicker training a lot more effectiveness versus trying to figure out what's uh, rewarding for your dog while doing clicker training. Is that accurate? Yeah. So um, at that point, for the, from reward selection, I know and I've had dogs that have zero interest in treats. They're totally ball driven. So if I tried to clicker train that dog with cheese or something, zero, it wouldn't mm -hmm. have happened. So I can use, I would use the secondary or tertiary ball with their primary reward jackpot every so often during the clicking process to accelerate the learning, but I can use the reward that they find rewarding. And I expect to click train a dog in two days from mm -hmm. start to finish. Uh, again, going back to the principles of accelerate learning, high value reward. Um, so yeah, and you can use variable reward as well during clicker training if you want to. If the dog is very comfortable with food, I do like to use food, very small, high-value treats, because they disappear quick. You know, one of the limitations we use in a toy reward in clicker training is that from click to reinforcement to then recovering reinforcement is a slower process, but also it can physically tire the dog a lot quicker so you don't get as long as sessions in. With food, very small amounts of high-value food, they're gone in seconds and we're repeating the process again. So if I can, I will use food because it makes the process a lot quicker. Um, but then you can introduce jackpot rewards every so often to really accelerate the process. All right. Very good. So then if we just go back to the steps really quickly. So step one is reward selection. Step two is clicker training. Step three, I think this is this is the point that uh, will be a, 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 a huge learning curve for specifically the HRD handlers out there. So you teach a response um, to the odor prior to, to odor, excuse me, not to the odor, to odor prior to the imprinting activity. So you mentioned earlier, you generally teach your dogs to sit. So you, you're teaching that sit response prior to actually adding odor. So I'd, I'd like to really dig into that for a bit, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, so we're back, train, back chaining the behavior sequence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back, back chaining allows the most complex part, which is the passive response when I get to something which is going to offer me a high value reinforcement that I must be passive and remain here in a solid behavior. And then we back chain it all the way back to um, odor. So it's really practiced in that um, passive response, but it is separate from the requirement of an odor. So by, by teaching a response first, we're giving the dog an option of a behavior which is reinforceable in a sequential step process, which eventually ends up the cue being odor. Now we mm -hmm. know the dog should understand the behavior before we add a cue. Well, if we're adding the cue at the beginning, we're doing the exact opposite to what best practices are in dog training. We're not developing a behavior before we're adding a cue. And ultimately the odor is a cue. The odor says, do this and you will receive reinforcement. Um, same as sit, you know, we lure the sit, lure the sit, lure the sit. Once the dog's got that, we add the cue when the dog's gonna sit and we reinforce it, et cetera. And we end up that the dog repeats the behavior of sit 
just on the cue alone. Well, that's what we want with human remains. You smell the odor, you give the response, and the, the response is so ingrained into you that that response is rock solid at, at the end. And it allows us to actually fine tune that response without making odor detection a negative. And we never want odor to be a negative in any respect. It must always be a positive. And if we can do that with a neutral, and it's visual at first with a, with a pill bottle lid, then we add a piece of Kong and we develop it forward. And I use Kong for this training. You don't have to specifically use Kong. But in doing that, you know, we can, um, we can shape the behaviors we want and we're not using odor to do that, our final target odor. Mm. The other advantage is I'm not wasting my valuable target odor in an imprint process. You know, all that, all that work of the dog being passive is done before the dog even comes across a piece of flesh or a bone or a tooth or whatever it is. So I've um, completely eliminated that risk that the dog's going to go active, it's going to lick it, it's going to bite at it. Um, it's going to do all these things that potentially occur during that initial stage of teaching a response that when it does it to a piece of Kong, it doesn't matter. I can use extinction, you know, I can just pick it up and stop the game or whatever, and the dog learns very quickly the consequence of that behavior, but there's been no consequence detrimentally on my training aid. So there's a lot of advantages in doing it that way. It's a very simple system. And then at the end, adding the cue, the dog's already rock solid in its response. Very good. So I can see my listeners sitting here right now at this point with a gigantic question mark above their head. Um, so I want to make sure uh, to ask you to clarify this. And so whenever you're tra uh, training, excuse me, the response to odor, you use uh, a neutral item. And so you said you start with something visual, then you may uh, add a neutral item that has some type of odor. Is that and so you, you use, um, I think you said a Kong and a bottle top, a couple of other things. So could you just dig into that just a bit? Because I know that's so different than, than what HR handlers are used to hearing. So could you just repeat that really quickly? Yeah, so the bottle top's like a pill bottle top. And mm -hmm. the purpose of that is it hides a treat behind it. So you start to get the focus on an object and a treat can be deployed from behind that bottle lid. So it's just a tool to start to introduce the focus. Uh, we then Velcro a piece of Kong on top. So again, we have a visual, it's all visual at this point, um, a visual cue for the dog to actually give, in majority of cases, it's a sit response. Um, the Malinois we got, it was a down response. If the dog is really fixed on a response type, we allow the dog to do that. But in most cases, we manipulate a sit out of the dog. Um, and I use Kong for that. And, and it's small pieces of Kong, like the size of a quarter. And the reason I use Kong is because, one, it is a neutral odor, but I can use that Kong later on in training, that Kong odor. I can bury a Kong and leave it. And I can teach the dog the model behavior of how to search for buried odor, which is naturalized within the environment, so there's no ground disturbance. So the dog understands how to search the ground which isn't necessarily innate for dogs. They generally air scent. Mm -hmm. But by teaching them that the ground is productive, I can do that with Kong and not worry about it being dug up by critters and eaten. 
by being eaten by bacteria, in the case of human remains, eaten by bacteria, affected by the environment, because the con just sits there, you know, and it's not attractive really to any critters. It's not affected by the environment other than naturally distributing the scent and also it can naturalize in the environment. I can also travel with it easy enough. I can throw it out in a field. I can do whatever I want with a piece of Kong and it's going to allow me to train a lot of the systems of search to the dog without, again, using my valuable human remains. And once the dog understands what a buried odor is like, um, what an aged odor is like, what a naturalized in the environment odor is like, then I can introduce human remains because the dog already understands the game. And now all I'm doing is saying, same game, just a slightly different or a very different smell. But I'm now, um, I just have to introduce a different odor, not the whole game using my valuable HR. Very good. So then um, the, the question I know some people are asking, all right, so now my dog is essentially imprinted on Kong what type of issues could I run into with that? And so is there a way to then start proofing the dog off of Kong or, uh, off of a Kong or for the life of the dog, is it always going to indicate on Kong specifically for your HR handlers? Uh, so I don't proof them off the Kong and particularly human remains, you know, in the typing environment that is, well, for the ASAR type environments, which is rural or even urban type environments, if my dog finds a Kong and brings it back to me, I've saved $13. I mean, I'm not sure. overly concerned. Um, I I don't do forensic search. If you're ever concerned that you're going to do forensic search in houses and you're concerned that your dog might give a response on a Kong that's hidden in a house, then sure. Now, I will say that I've worked dogs around full-size Kong because we use down to millimeter sizes. Mm-hmm training uh, oh i don't know what that is in inches i'm sorry but minute trace amounts in training and the context that you can actually prove the dog if you wanted to prove is that a full-size kong in context um may not or should not elicit a response for the dog but you don't have to use kong and that's you know what i said at the start you can use any neutral odor for this i use kong for a number of reasons but one of the main ones is it doesn't conflict with the odor I'm looking for in the environments I work. Even with oil spill, you know, Kongs can wash up on a shoreline or something. The dog finds one, they bring it back. I've saved $13, I put it in my pocket um, and we move on. I mean, it's not, you know, I'm I'm supposed to be the intelligence in the team. My, my dog gives a response, I'll investigate and say yes or no, you know, you need to investigate this further or don't. But Honestly, I can't remember that a Kong has ever been an issue in a real operational search. All right, very good. All right, so so now I, I just want to walk through through the steps again. So first is reward selection, uh, then it's clicker training, then it's teaching a response. Uh, and then after we've gone through those steps, I believe, and you correct me if I'm wrong, the next step is actually adding odor. Um, I, I do I do want to ask the question, at what point in your, your response training do you feel your dog is ready to add odor? Is there a milestone you're looking for with, out of your dog? Does it need to hold the sit for a certain amount of time? When is it when you feel like, okay, now my dog is ready to add odor to it? 
Yeah, in the workbook, it actually explains all that and what the criteria is as you move through. Now, you can set your own goals, of course. If you want a dog to hold a response for 10 seconds or whatever it is, that's the goals that you apply and that's what you're trying to achieve. With the landmine detection dogs, the dogs had to hold a passive response for six minutes without moving. Um, I mean, that's extreme. I, right. I don't think a lot of people would need that. But it's whatever goal you've set, you know, whether and in the workbook, we talk about variable amounts between three and seven seconds, et cetera, which generally is sufficient. A dog gives a response. Seven seconds is generally enough. But if you feel that, well, I might work my dog out of sight, I might need a minute, then build it up to a minute, you know, whatever you need. Um, once the dog has understood the process of giving a passive response, we then start to locate the Kong in our case, but the neutral odor, it could be target odor, whatever you want to do, within some sort of container. I use um, either stainless steel spice shakers or mason jars. And then we just pair the odor with the now learned response of give a sit response and build it up duration. Once completed to the standard within the workbook, then you can move forward with your own targets. And the workbook final stage is actually on the target you want, but then you start to introduce that and add your own criterias mm -hmm. or certification criterias or whatever you follow to actually improve the dog based on that. But that, you know, that's going to be so different. So I took the workbook to a point where you can move forward based on your own criteria. As I said, we had a six minute sit with some dogs, um, with the dogs we train into the minute, um, for some research they'll be required to do a four second hold but we'll go to eight seconds to make sure they they understand that four is an achievable amount um so it's going to depend on the criteria very good yeah i i have to tell you when i read that six minute uh sit in the workbook i had to scratch my eyes and make sure that i read it right i stepped away from the book for a second and said all right i must be hallucinating and i, I, I to, every time i go back and look at the book it still says six minutes so <laughs> i've never seen it but I'd, I'd love to see it that that's incredibly impressive um okay so now we got the response set to the criteria that we would like uh let's talk about the process of now actually introducing odor so is it is it just as simple as removing the kong or the pill bottle or whatever the neutral odor is and replacing it with the the actual target odor, what does that process look like? Yeah, basically you just described it. So you then put your target in the same setup and when the dog, you click on snip or I click on snip because I use a clicker. And generally um, you can introduce an odor in three sessions, which is one day and I've done it. And as long as the dog understands the game and that's the most important part of the process. If the game, if the dog knows the game, so for instance, if I hold a mason jar towards my dog and it understands the game, it knows to put its nose into a mason jar and sniff. And when it does, I click and it will then understand that is a brand new odor that I am now is part of my repertoire. I can go and find it. So my Springer Spaniel is imprinted like that all the time. And she knows that game. She knows when he holds a mason jar out, I put my nose in, I do some sniffs, he clicks, that's my new odor. Um, so it depends what game you want to play, but as long as the dog understands the game that you utilize for introducing odor, 
then it's literally as quick as three sessions, pay on sniff, pay on sniff, wait for the response, we're done. You know, the dog now understands odor. Now, it's very early days. It's going to need more experience on that odor. Mm -hmm. But I have imprinted my dog on a brand new target odor, which was a toad, an endangered toad, on three times in one day. And, and I was walking back to the car at the end of that training session within an area that had these toads. She aired up and took me about uh, three feet or so a meter to, a, to one of the toads that she recognized as target odor. So I know that the whole process can happen very quickly. But like I said, my dog understands the game. Very good. Um, so th this whole process from kind of and 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 uh, the beginning to end, uh, where are you doing this? And so what I mean by where is this in a controlled environment? Is it in a in in, in the same building every time? Or are you going out in the, into the middle of the jungle and going through this process? So is there a variation of of the both? Is it a place the dog knows and a place the dog doesn't know? Uh, are we talking about introducing new odors or the 15 day process? Uh, the 15 day process a, a, as a whole. Yeah, I do that all in the same training lab. We have a training lab in uh, Somerset, South San Antonio, mm -hmm. where all the uh, basic training and odor work is done. So the dogs come into the same environment, again, understands the game. That room is my playroom. I come in here and there's spice cans with lids on. I know what's going on. And I, at this point, we're not proofing those behaviors to different environments. We're teaching the basics of the imprint process. Once the dog understands that and has completed the imprint process, then we can start proofing. But by that time, again, the dog understands the game. You know, it knows what it's supposed to do. And now it's a process of proofing all those behaviors, adding different odors, and just taking the dog uh, forward in progressive steps to ensure it understands how to play this game of detection as we move through to the the standard that we expect our final dog to be at very good yeah i, I think i i've seen quite a few times where people are are adding new behaviors to their dogs um and areas the dogs have never been to so the dogs are very interested in the environment and there's very little work being done on on imprinting odor or whatever, whatever the different training may be. So very thank, thank you for bringing that out. So one thing I, I did want to ask, which I read in the book, I was like, this is a great idea, is that you add distractor odors uh, to the dog pretty early in the imprinting process. And so by distractors, I think you mentioned uh, pretty light odors. I think a cotton ball, a, uh, a pencil, uh, things like that. So kind of talk through that. Uh, adding distracting distracting odors to your imprinting process during that 15-day period. So we want the dogs to understand very cleanly what its target is. And what you can fall the trap on uh, into a trap of is if, for instance, you have three containers and one of those containers has a target in, what it actually tells the dog is if there's something in a container, give a response. And you can fall into the trap that the dogs will respond on anything within a container because it's something in a container. And also novel odors. You know, now you've, you've introduced something new, therefore I'm going to give a response to it. So pretty quickly, we want the dogs to understand it's not the case if there's something in a container. 
And it's not the case if this is a novel brand new odor. It's the odor we are imprinting you on is your target. And that communication, that clear detection communication is critical for the dog later in life not to give false responses because it understands exactly what it's supposed to be looking for. But one of the other principles that I talk about in the three-leg stool is that I mix the target with distractors. So it's not just, well, for instance, if I'm uh, working in a human remains type environment, then some of my distractors would be soil, leaves, uh, vegetation of different types, trash, you know, they are the type of things I'm going to encounter in the environment that I don't want the dog to look on as potential targets. So I will train their, uh, them as separately as distractors. And once I know the dog's ignoring them, then I will mix my human remains with those distractors. So now I want the dog to pick out the human remains, which is mixed in the soil, mixed in the leaves, mixed in the vegetation, mixed in some trash, because that's what it's going to encounter in real life. It's mm -hmm. never or it's very rarely going to encounter this super clean, nicely stored in a clean container human remains. It's going to find human remains in the environment, which means there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of nasal noise from other odors. And I want the dog to be able to pick out the human remains from the environment and say, you know, this is so similar to what you've trained me to do. I'm going to give a response on it. And that's that clear communication and detection I talk about that we need the dog to understand all presentations of human remains, not just a piece of skin in a mason jar or something. Right. Okay. So then that brings me to my next question. Um, low odor availability versus high odor availability when you're doing your imprinting process. What are the pros and cons that you've seen and what do you generally go with? It's going to depend on the target. Uh, so I do teach that you should use trace amounts. Again, it's that three-leg stool. One mm -hmm. of the principles is to teach trace. But trace, as I try and explain, is dependent on the target. Um, if we're looking for scat, uh, poop, then a trace amount of lizard scat is the size of a piece of, um, or less than the size of, say, a piece of rice. But if I'm looking for jaguar or elephant you know i'm looking for this huge amount that's the size of a soccer ball mm -hmm. so a trace amount isn't important to us so you've got to look at what your target is and realize well, what's the smallest amount i could ever want to find or expect to find now in human remains if we think about the human remains that's well concealed potentially from a crime case that's buried and it's wrapped and it's had lime placed on it and things, then the odor profile potentially is going to be very low. And I might want to train my dog to low amounts, but I'm not going to look at microscopic small amounts within an environment. That's just too difficult and unrealistic for us to expect to find. But I do want to take the dog's uh, calibrate, I call it, the dog's nose down to smaller amounts than I can expect to find in the field so that his nose is actually calibrated to locate those types of odors and the dog will actually use its nose to successfully find a target. One of the problems is if you always use a large amount of odor, the dog doesn't have to sniff. It can run along basically with its mouth, mouth open and hit this wall of odor. Here it is. 
And yeah. the dog learns to run around and not actually search effectively. What we need the dog is to understand there's a difference between looking for this really um, easy to find human body that's a few weeks old, but also you need to search hard because you might be looking for something that's been in the ground for two, three years, well concealed, well naturalized, and the odor's not going to hit you in the face in the same way. So yeah, you need to think about your target, you need to calibrate the dog's nose, but you need to be aware that if you're always using large amounts, you're teaching the dog not to search effectively and use its nose in a sniffing behavior. You're teaching it to run around and just hit a wall of odor. Okay, very good, makes, makes perfect sense. So last question I'll ask, I always ask the, the folks who are kind enough to come on to the podcast is, You've been working dogs for a long time. Anything that you're particularly proud of, uh, any searches that you've been a part of and you, your dog did something really impressive that you'd like to tell the listeners about? Oh, there's so many, you know, over the years. And like I said, after going up to Canada, I realized that I just love working dogs. And I've been fortunate that I've been in the field working dogs as much as I've taught about it. And I love going into the field and actually working dogs. And there's lots of times that I've had finds that have just been incredible. You know, they've really, um, they've really impressed me. Recently, we're on a project at the minute. It's assisting Texas General Land Office down on the uh, coast, the Gulf Coast around Corpus Christi, Port Aransas, that area. And we're looking for tarballs. And the tarballs can be buried in the sand or washed up. And these occur naturally on the Gulf Coast from seepage or spills offshore. So they're well known about, you know, and they exist. And we're doing surveys to try and quantify what is the amount of tarballs based on season, based on beach profiles, et cetera. And in comparison to human survey. So dog survey compared to human survey of these tarballs that exist in the environment. So I was working Poppy, my Springer Spaniel, along the beach there on uh, Mustang Island. And she started to air up, but pointing towards the sea. So we were working on the beach. And I realized that the uh, because the wind was coming off, off the uh, seaside onto the beach, that she must be airing up on something out in the water. So I grabbed my phone now quickly, and I've got video of this. She actually aired up, waded out into the water, and then started to follow a tarball as it's being washed ashore. And I could see the tarball, and she couldn't. It's in the wash. She wow. was following it completely on odor, which was, you know, it's underwater, but it's mm -hmm. being affected by the tide. And then as it kind of came up shore, I rewarded her with a ball. She didn't give a response. She didn't have to. You know, that change of behavior and following a tarball through the sea was enough. And I just thought how incredible, you know, that that dog understands odor so much that she was prepared to wade out into the sea and detect a small tarball. It wasn't huge, about the size of a dollar bill that's underwater being washed up live. You know, it wasn't a training aid. Um, and that kind of ratifies all the training you do, all the effort you put in, that the dogs are able to take what you teach as long as you spend time doing the basics and resolve these problems that I never trained her to search, you know, out on this, in the sea. Never. Right. 
she did that herself. So things like that, you know, they just please my day that it works. But like I said, I've had thousands and thousands of finds and think about, you know, there's been so many that have just pleased me. And I think working the dog is what pleases me the most. Being successful is great, but I just mm -hmm. love getting out there and actually working the dog more than anything. Very good. Yeah, that's an incredibly impressive story. So appreciate you sharing that with us. So uh, final, final question. If people want uh, to learn more about you, uh, they want uh, to, to see some of the videos that you mentioned, do you have a website, social media? Where can people find you at? Website is Chiron, C-H-I-R-O-N, dash, K-the-number-nine.com. Instagram is where I post a lot of stuff. And most days I'll post videos of dogs working or what we're up to christina and i we train dogs or my travels and that is chiron canine all one word no dash um i do have a facebook a business facebook chiron canine i don't do so much on that it's mainly instagram and then obviously um my website i keep up to date with papers we've published or research we've done or news etc is all on there all right, very good. And so for the listeners, I'll post that information um, on my Facebook page. I'll post that information within the show notes as well uh, for this episode. So again, the book is called, uh, the workbook, excuse me, is called Imprint Your Detection Dog in 15 Days uh, by Mr. Paul Bunker. Paul, we are incredibly appreciative of you taking the time to join us today. A lot of incredibly valuable information and uh, we hope the listeners enjoyed it. Thank you, Paul, again for taking the time to join us. Oh, thank you. Uh, it was an honor and I appreciate you inviting me. Absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you all to the listeners uh, for joining us today on Hunt Find Alert. And we'll see you out there next time. Safe searching. Mm -hmm.